Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Good morning, Emmanuel Faith. Welcome. If you're worshiping with us online, um, my prayer is that just a little piece of what we got to experience made it through to your device. I'm a little bit tender this morning. I don't know why, but just singing, there will be a day. Um, I am just so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for this reminder that we get every, um, every Easter season of the reality that Jesus has conquered the grave. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to um, be reaching out, having conversations with people who um, are in your sphere of influence, and maybe you invite them to come and um, experience Easter with us. Uh, I, I want to invite you specifically at our 1045 service. We will have a service at 1045 on Easter Sunday. Um, but would you consider coming to the Saturday night service at five o'clock? That would give more room for guests to come on Easter. So um, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus will rise from the grave on Saturday night um, <laughs> this year right here. So we would invite you to come to that as well. And we have handouts that you can take, invites to put in your purse or in your wallet so that when you're in the line at the grocery store, you can invite people to join you so that they, along with you, might have that hope that there will be a day. Amen? When my kids were little, they used to love playing this game with one another that they call, I have an animal in my mind. And, and one of them would imagine an animal and then the other two would try to guess which animal they were thinking of. And they would ask yes, no questions in order to try to discover which animal the other kid had in their mind. And it was so cute to listen to them and uh, go back and forth. Is it a gorilla? No. Is it a cat? Heck no. You know, um, a lot of cat lovers here. All right, fair enough. At least I know. At least I know. I'm just kidding. And so I'd listen to them go back and forth. And um, one time I was listening to them and I just had this thought in my mind, like, God, one, thank you for my kids, but how much of the time do I play that same game with you? Like, I've, I've got a God in my mind. I've got a picture of you in my mind. And, and so do you. So do you. And, and for some of you, the picture of God that you have in your mind is of like an old, very, very kind man with kind eyes. And maybe he looks a little bit like that. Maybe, maybe the picture that you have in your mind of God isn't quite as kind. Maybe you have um, in your mind what I call Grand Torino God, get off my lawn God, right? Like get away from me, God. Uh, maybe the God that you have in your mind is a little bit more like a genie in a bottle, where if you say the right prayer, do the right thing, then God certainly will give you what you're hoping for. But every single one of us has a God in our mind. In fact, would you turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you have a God in mind. You have a God in mind. And even if it's a blank slate or a question mark, you have a God in mind. And A.W. Tozer, in his great book, The Pursuit of God, said this in the very beginning. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he argues, Tozer does, that that mental picture of God is so important because it drives the way that we live, it drives the way that we interact with God, and the way that we interact with all of the people around us. You have a God in mind. It's part of the, the human experience. 
But what's really, really challenging is that when the God that we have in mind doesn't align with the God that we experience in real life. Have you ever had that happen? We just got done singing about the faithfulness of God. Faithful you are and faithful you will be. But if we're honest, there are moments in our life where God hasn't seemed all that faithful. Right? There are valleys that we've walked through where we've raised our head to heaven and gone, God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't, I don't see your fingerprints. And then the, the God that we had in mind who was going to stop those bad things from happening starts to crumble beneath us. Maybe you had an, a God in mind who would make everybody that you loved healthy and whole. Maybe you had a God in mind that would make the business succeed and it fell apart. Maybe you had a God in mind who was going to tell you exactly what to do at every fork in the road that you came through. And you met one of those forks and went, I don't know which way to go. Maybe you had a God in mind that would always bless you financially. Maybe you had a God in mind that would make the marriage pure bliss if you did things God's way. And it fell apart. And maybe you had a God in mind that would prevent hard things from coming into your life, things like evil and pain and abuse and and in a very painful way. Maybe, just maybe, somewhere along this road that we call life, you found out that that God that you had in mind doesn't exist. And before we sort of spiral into this crisis of faith, let me suggest to you that the very process of frustration with God is actually a really, really healthy part of growth. It's a healthy part of a faith that's maturing. And as we're going to see today, disappointment with God doesn't reveal a failure of God. It reveals a faulty expectation of God. When we look at God and we think, God, you failed me, or God, you didn't come through like I thought you would, what we're really saying back to God is, God, I had a different picture in my mind of what you were like than what I'm finding out is real. Before this scares you, we can just go right to the scriptures and we can see person upon person of faith who had this type of a conversation with God. I think of Moses who says back to God, God, if you're going to treat me like this, just kill me now. (laughs) Or I think of Job that says back to God, do I have a target on my back? Or I think of David who writes in Psalm 13, how long will you forget me and hide your face from me? I mean, is that not him saying, God, I expected you to do something that you're not doing. God, you're silent when I expected that you'd speak. God, you're not coming through when I thought that you would certainly move on my behalf. God, I, I thought you were going to show yourself strong. And I'm wrestling with seeing your fingerprints. I think of John the Baptist sitting in a prison cell with the walls closing in, days away from his death. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus' disciples, are you really the one? Are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? 
See, all of these people in their own way found out that the God that they had in mind was not the God that existed in reality. But disappointment in God doesn't reveal a failure of God. It reveals a faulty expectation of God. When we encounter pain and suffering in life, it does not mean that God does not exist. It simply means that the God who prevents all pain and suffering from coming into our life doesn't exist. That God doesn't exist. But there is a real God that's transcendent above all of that who does exist. And I would argue that this process of letting go of the image that we have of God in mind that isn't real is actually a part of the maturing of our faith. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis put it. He said, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It It has to be shattered from time to time. Just by a quick show of hands, how many of you have had this happen? Yeah, me too. He shatters it himself, Lewis writes. He is the great iconoclast. And even though the shattering is painful, it is a gift because having faith in a fantasy or in a fallacy never leads to the life that we deeply long for. To say it like this, the spiritual life is about reality, not about fantasy. It is about taking God as he actually is or not taking him at all. And the painful part of that process is that what's false has to die so that what's real can actually emerge. But when that view of God that we have in our mind and that we long for oftentimes starts to fade away, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Will I hold on to what I wish was true? Will I walk away altogether? God, I'm out. And my guess is you've had people that have done this and maybe you've been on the verge of that yourself or maybe you're here this morning going through the motions, but in your heart, that's what you've done. Or, or will I incorporate what I now know to be true of God into what I believe deeply about him? And there's a chapter in the Bible that really starts to paint this picture for us. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be camping out in John chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can start to turn there with me. That paints this picture of an expectation that this family had of God that, that didn't go the way that they expected it to go. So over the next few weeks, we're going to walk verse by verse right through John chapter 11. If you're wondering, are we going to get back to 1 Corinthians after Easter? Yes, we are. Can't wait. But over the next few weeks, we're going to journey towards the cross and the empty tomb together through John chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on when we pick up this story. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been healing. He's been feeding God's power has been on display and then Jesus starts to pull back a little bit and he retreats to the other side of the Jordan River, the east side. It's a a mini sort of Sabbath, if you will. And that's where we pick it up in the end of John chapter 10. It says, he, Jesus, went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. I love this picture of Jesus sort of hitting pause a little bit on his public ministry, and yet people are still coming to faith in him. He's just such a compelling person that people were drawn to him even when he's in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan. 
And that's where we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 11. It's a story, I'd argue, about great expectations, but in many ways, just like Pip and Dickens' famous novel, those expectations go unmet. Verse 1 of John chapter 11. Are you there? Wonderful. Here we go. It says this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so um, John sort of fast forwarding to John chapter 12, where we'll see Mary get down on her hands and knees and, and wipe Jesus's feet with her hair. He wants you to know that this is a family who Jesus knows and who he loves deeply, deeply, which he points out in verse three. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death for it is for the glory of God so that the son of man may be glorified through it. Verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he heard that Lazarus was ill. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, there's a few things that start to emerge from this very first six verses of this story. First, it's clear that Mary and Martha have expectations of Jesus, don't they? They have such great expectations of him that they get a few friends. They say to the friends, go tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick, that he's ill. And we're not sure if these expectations came from the fact that they had seen Jesus heal the man who was born blind that they'd heard the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, that they'd heard the stories of Jesus healing the man who was lame at the pool of Bethesda. We don't know exactly where these expectations of Jesus, that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he would heal him. We're not sure where the expectations came from. We just know that they're there. And we also know that they believe deeply that Jesus loves them. Did you catch that? John lays it on pretty thick in the text. He wants you to get this. Verse three, Lord, he whom you, what? Love is ill. Verse five, now Jesus, what? Loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And John wants us to enter into this story and he wants us to find ourselves in this spot convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved by Jesus and yet often find ourselves waiting on him. He waits two days in order to show up. And it's as though this conviction about God's affection has driven these expectations of what he will do down deep into the souls of these two sisters. And we can relate, we can relate because a conviction about God's affection creates expectations. God, if you love me, you're gonna show up. God, if you love me, certainly you're gonna heal. God, if you, if you love me, you're gonna help me find a spouse. If you love me, you're gonna help me land that job. If you love me, certainly your power will be displayed in my life. And then the scriptures say, and so Jesus waited to more days, which can we all admit seems like the most unloving thing that you can do. 
And yet this is often where we find ourselves. It's the, one of the great mysteries of the spiritual life that God sometimes doesn't come through when it feels like we need him most. Can we just name that? And yet, and yet we're told two times, Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them. And I think what we're being invited to is this recalibration of our um, expectations of what God is like and the way that God acts. And I think Jesus is calling us to resist assuming that God's perceived inaction means a lack of his affection. And if you have your notes out, I'd invite you to circle that word perceived because so much of the time we feel like that God is sitting on our hands or on his hands or that God is silent when actually he's working behind the scenes and we can only see it after, can I get an amen? amen. But the scriptures want us to name the reality that so oftentimes our heart and our mind go to, God, you didn't show up the way that I thought you would when, you, when I thought you would, therefore you must not love me. And John and Jesus want us to know that that is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. That we can name beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are convinced of the love of God. The early church preacher Chrysostom said, even friends of God become sick. John would later on write in his letter to the churches that we call 1 John, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that Jesus, or that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that, say it with me, church, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Most people think that at the time of writing this, John was being persecuted because of his faith in Jesus. He would later be drenched in boiling oil in an attempt to try to take his life and then finally outcast as an exile onto the island of Patmos. And he will still declare and he will still write, God loves us beyond a shadow of a doubt. And his encouragement to you today and the encouragement through John 11 today is to not look at the circumstances of our life, the pain of our life, the oftentimes just muck and the mire that we get caught in and assume that Jesus doesn't love us, we've got to speak a better word over our own hearts and our own souls, remembering that because of the cross of Christ, we can be confident that Jesus loves me even when. Can I get an amen? amen. That whatever comes through my life passes through the lens of the cross. Can cancer passes through the cross. Divorce passes through the cross. Joblessness passes through the cross. I don't know who needs to hear that today, but inaction does not mean a lack of affection. His delay is not his indifference. His delay is not his indifference. So would you just take a moment, close your eyes, pause, and just try to name some of the, the things you're wrestling with right now. And I don't know if any of them cause you to go, back to God and say, God, do you really love me? But I just want you to hear him say today, I love you. Your name is engraved in the palm of my hands. I died for you. I've forgiven you. The pain that you're walking through does not mean he's removed his love from you. Second thing, second thing. You can open your eyes if you want. 
verse four, there's something that's sort of buried in this verse that I want you to see. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. And this is the ESV translation. I think the NASB captures the essence of the Greek a little bit better. And that translation said, this sickness does not end in death. Uh, As if to say, Lazarus is going to die, but death isn't the end. Uh, Death may be a reality, but it is not a finality. And see, here's what Jesus wants the disciples to recognize. They're in the middle of a story. And it would be unwise to draw a conclusion about the end of the story in the middle. Would you agree? Yeah. And here's the truth of the matter, friends. We live oftentimes in the middle of John chapter 11. We we live in the questions. We live in the illness. We live in the sickness. We live in the death. And so much of the time we draw a conclusion about the end because of what we are experiencing in the middle. And Jesus's invitation to us through John chapter 11 is going to be to remain confident in the middle of the story because we know the end. Because we know the end. In 1982, Stephen King wrote one of his most famous short stories. It's entitled The Shawshank Redemption. It became famous because of a movie that was released in 1994, but the story's about a man named Andy Dufresne who's wrongfully imprisoned and sentenced to life in prison in Shawshank State Penitentiary. And throughout the story, the, the reader finds himself rooting for Dufresne, but with little hope that anything is ever going to change in his life. And it's not until the end of the story that you start to see that throughout the story, Dufresne has been chipping away at the prison wall in his cell, burrowing a tunnel out where he will eventually walk towards freedom. But just imagine yourself reading through that story or watching the movie and just ending it with Dufresne being in prison. Imagine you stop reading in the middle He's locked up, sentenced for life. Your assumption would be that Andy Dufresne eventually dies in Shawshank State Penitentiary. But if you've seen the movie, and spoiler alert, okay, but you've had a few decades. (laughs) So that's on you, okay? But if you've seen the movie, you know that the movie ends with redemption. It ends with hope. It ends with beauty. And it would be unwise to stop watching Shawshank in the middle or reading it and not get to the end. It would be unwise to draw a conclusion, an ultimate conclusion based around a temporary reality. It would be unwise to do the same thing in your life. To draw a conclusion around a temporary reality reality. You'll often hear people say, and I've often said, if you're not dead, God's not done. And to that, I would add, even once you're dead, God's not done. 
Because death is not the end of our story. Resurrection is the end of our story. And I want you to come back in two weeks, but just in case you don't, let me give you a spoiler alert of where you're going, where we're going. Eventually on Easter, we will find out that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the grave, and that he has walked out as the first fruits of everything that you and I, by faith, will become in him, that one day there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. The old order of things will pass away, and behold, new will come. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. And so if you're not there, God's not done. So don't draw a conclusion about the end in the middle. It will not end in death. And then listen to what Jesus says next. It will not end in death. It is for the, will you say this with me? the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit and he lets us gaze in on the throne room of heaven to see one of the central motives of God, his own glory his own glory. God is for his glory. And lest you think that's egotistical or narcissistic or somehow prideful or off, let me cut you off at the pass and ask you a question. What better gift can God give us than his very self? The glory of God is God's attributes on display, his beauty, his majesty, his power, his magnificence, all of his characteristics coming onto the pages of history in real life, God's glory on display. And I would argue that God's glory on display is one of the greatest gifts God can give us. It's why the psalmist will say in Psalm 72, blessed it be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen and amen. amen, amen. But what we see in John 11 is this plot twist of sorts that we're called to step into, that we're called to realign our expectations of God with. It's the belief that God's glory often shines brightest when life is darkest. And there are times we don't have a category for that truth. We, we assume that God is on display when life is grand and when we're triumphant and when we, you know, write John three sixteen on the eye black right before the football game. And then after we win, we give God the glory, right? But the truth of the matter is God is often glorified most when life is darkest. I mean, just hold your Bible open to John chapter 11 and, and look through this text with me. We're not gonna read it all right now. Over the next few weeks we will, but just, just, brow, uh, just sort of glance over it with me and, and let's wrestle with this question. Where in John 11 is God's glory on display? So we'll see in John 11 that Jesus, once he finally meets Mary and Martha, begins to weep. We'll see that he really sees them in their pain. We'll see that he empathizes with them. We'll see that he becomes indignant as he approaches the tomb, angry. 
And we'll see that eventually he says to Lazarus, rise up, come out. So in the midst of all that, where is God's glory on display? See, I I would have initially said, well, God's glory is on display when Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. And you might be thinking the same thing, like, Paulson, is this a trick question? And to that I would say, no. And that is exactly where God's glory is on display. But it's not only where God's glory is on display. So what if God's glory is also on display when Jesus weeps? What if God's glory is also on display when Jesus gets angry at sin and death? What if God's glory is also on display when Jesus sees the people like you and me who are caught in the pain and frustration of life? What if God's glory is on display in all of those things in addition to, and I would argue most strongly in the resurrection, but what if his glory is on display in all of those? I mean, let me just ask you a question. Let me ask it another way. When has Jesus been most beautiful to you? My guess is that you've seen Jesus's beauty, not just in the healing, but in the way that he entered into the pain. Can I get an amen? Amen. That you've seen Jesus's work, not just in giving you the solution that you were hoping for, but being a comfort to your soul in the middle of the mess. See, I think we've seen this play out in our lives, that God's glory shines brightest when life is darkest. And we see it with Lazarus too. We, we see this overarching truth that somehow, someway, God in all of his brilliance and all of his power creates a position where the tomb eventually becomes a womb. <laughs> where that which is darkest in our lives gives birth to new life. That which we would rather undo or avoid altogether becomes the seedbed for kingdom fruit that God eventually bears, that becomes a blessing to ourselves and to those around us. The tomb eventually becomes the womb because God's glory often shines brightest when life is darkest. Now, there's a a bit of an interlude where Jesus travels to Bethany and we're gonna read it starting in verse seven. It says this, Then after his disciples said to Jesus, let us go to, after this, the disciples said to Jesus, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? Time out, Jesus. Like, let's talk about this. Remember, we left Judea because they wanted to kill you. And I'm sure Jesus is like, oh, shucks, guys. Thanks so much for caring about me so deeply. Thank you for your wisdom and your guidance. And then he answers, are there not 12 hours in the day? Anyone who walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, I understand that things didn't go well the last time that we were in Judea. That's an understatement. But God's sovereignty overrides any sort of human hostility. This idea of there being 12 hours in the day was a figurative way of saying that the time allotted by God the Father for the earthly work of Jesus would not be thwarted by any sort of evil or any sort of human attempt to cut him off. 
Jesus is going, I'm walking back into Jerusalem and I have no fear because God the Father is with us. Verse 11. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. I love that Jesus once again reminds us that Lazarus is his what? Friend. He loves him. He's for him. Even in the waiting, our friend Lazarus. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And at this point, Jesus drops his head and goes, oh, you guys, can't pick up a metaphor? I've been with you for how long? And you're still not picking up what I'm putting down? And by the way, by the way, this word recover in, in the Greek, it could be translated saved. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus said plainly, boys, I understand you're not picking up what I'm putting down. Our boy's dead. He's gone. That's my translation. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. And they're like, time out, Jesus. You're glad that Lazarus died? Why? Why in the world would you be glad? So that you may, what? Believe. Believe. Let us go to him. Here we see Jesus prioritizing faith or belief in the life of his disciples, in the life of his followers. And he's even saying, I'm grateful that you had to walk through pain. I'm grateful that you had to walk through sorrow. I'm grateful that you had to walk through doubt, that you had to wonder in the waiting, God, what are you up to? Because that wondering in the waiting created an increased capacity for faith. And there is no other way to please God than to live by faith. It's impossible to please him without faith. And what Jesus is encouraging us to do, recalibrating our expectations of God and what he will do in our lives as his followers to trust that disappointments are designed to develop our faith, not to destroy it. To develop our faith, not to destroy it. And and one of the things we learn over and over through the scriptures is that one of the things that develops our faith, faith most are trials, are pain, are things that we would normally, if given an option, avoid and eliminate from our lives all together. I mean, I mean, imagine that. One of God's greatest tools in your life is something that you would avoid every time if you had the option. And so God allows things to come into our life to strengthen us and to build us because his conviction is that our faith is of greater worth than gold. It's the most valuable thing we hold. It's the most valuable thing that we have. So James will write to the churches and he'll say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, just by a show of hands, how many people is that easy for? Right? Me neither. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Joy in trials because we know that trials strengthen and build our faith. And here's one of our challenges. We often view faith as static, right? We either have it or we don't. But the scriptures view faith as dynamic, as growing, 
expanding, maybe even shrinking at certain times. Martin Luther would say it like this, the disciples already believe in one sense, but each new trial offers scope for growth of faith. So that which is potential becomes real. Faith can neither be stationary nor complete. Faith always becomes. To say it another way, this is a journey that we are on with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but one of the questions that I ask when I read something like this or when I read James chapter one is, why in the world? And this has happened oftentimes as a pastor. I've had the chance to sit across the coffee table from people or across the couch in my office. And for some people, the, the trials crush their faith. And for others, the trials seem to form their faith. And I found myself praying throughout John 11, God, I wanna be the latter. I, I want the, the trials and the struggles, the disappointments, the regrets, all of that. I want that to, to form my faith rather than to crush it. And I started to ask, what does that look like? And how do we see that played out in this passage? And there's just two things that I wanna give you as we begin to close our time together today. Number one, here's what I see this family doing. They ask honestly. They, they go to Jesus. They send a crew. Go tell him what's going on. Go tell him. He's gonna come through. They ask honestly. But then I think through Jesus's silence for a time and waiting in a time, there's another invitation that's put forward to people like you and me who live in the middle of the story that we ask honestly, but we also trust wholeheartedly. And that means a few things. Let me give you four and I'm gonna fly through them. Number one, it means that we believe that God is able to do whatever he wants, Amen. If God wants to heal, he can heal. If God wants to restore, he can restore. If God wants to move mountains, he can move mountains. God can do whatever he wants. Second, to trust wholeheartedly means to believe that if God can do whatever he wants, he's also wise enough to know what he should do. And sometimes he says no to things we assume he should say yes to. Third, to trust wholeheartedly means that we trust God's timeline, not ours. Oh, man. Because those two days can feel like an eternity, can't they? And so much of the time we give God the blueprint and go, hey, here you go. If you could execute that, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. And then finally, Trust, the fourth thing that it means to trust wholeheartedly is to believe, is to believe that he is at work whether we see it or not. To trust wholeheartedly. And it's this reshaping, do you see it? This reshaping of expectations in the very first part of this chapter where people's hearts are broken where God seems to, be way, seems to be moving more slowly than we might expect. And where people are going, God, I thought you'd do things different. That there's an invitation. Look at the way that this passage ends. I love this. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now, I'm glad some of you are chuckling because um, in the commentaries, there's no consensus about what Thomas means. Now, some people are more kind to Thomas than others, and they go, Thomas is bold. This is a declaration of 
faith. Jesus, wherever you go, we're going. And if it means you're going to die, we're going to die with you. And other people go, we, we just told you you're going to die in Judea. And now you're going to Judea. I guess we're going with you. Now, you get to decide how you read it. But the point, the point transcends any of the tone that you read that passage with. The tone is Thomas convinced that he's gonna follow Jesus even if he doesn't know all the answers and even if it means walking into his own death because his expectations of God have been shattered and then rebuilt. Jesus is the one who says, if you wanna follow me, take up your cross and follow. That's a different expectation than Thomas started with. But he reminds us that genuine faith demands that we trust God as he is, not as we wish he was. And here's why that's such a big deal. Because when our view of God is faulty, genuine faith is impossible. But as new covenant followers of Jesus, as new, new covenant Christians, disciples, we're invited to have a view of God that aligns with reality. And here's the view of God that we get from the scriptures. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So would you close your eyes? Let's begin where we started. You have a view of God in your mind. So do I. But scripture says that the right view of God to have in our mind, to align with, with reality is that of Jesus. Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. So you don't have to doubt. In the darkest moments of life, you don't have to doubt whether or not God loves you. I think that's a word for someone here today. You're just really struggling, you're wrestling. God, if you love me, this stuff wouldn't have happened. And I think Jesus just wants to comfort you, hold you, declare his love over you today. Your name is engraved in the palm of his hands. He rejoices over you with singing. His perceived inaction does not mean a lack of affection. And there's some of you today that maybe just maybe your image of God is him staying on the cross but let's remember that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is he rises from the grave and so do we. And Jesus, would you speak that word of ultimate truth over us that one day you will call our name and we will rise. And Lord, we would pray that your glory would shine brightly in our lives through the things that we're proud of and the things that we'd rather keep hidden the things that we feel like you're victorious in and the things we feel like you're silent in. May the tomb become a womb. May you bring new life out of that which is darkest. Would you shine bright?
even when life is really difficult. And God, in it all, would you cause faith to rise, we pray. As we go to the table this morning, Jesus, would you meet us in a very real way? Would you minister to our hearts, reminding us of who you are and who we are in you? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.